Greetings and welcome to the JACCP podcast. This is Stuart Haynes, and I'm the Senior Associate Editor for the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. I'm also Professor and Director of Pharmacy Professional Development at the University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy, and I'm delighted you're here today because I get to talk to Jennifer Pruskowski from the University of Pittsburgh, where she serves as the Director of Geriatric Research and Education at the School of Medicine. And today we're going to talk about the paper Dr. Pruszkowski authored entitled How to Implement Deprescribing into Clinical Practice, which is available online now and will appear in the October 2021 issue of the JACCP. So, Jennifer, it's great to have you on the JACCP podcast today. Thank you, Stuart, for having me back. This is fun and exciting. Well, first, I got to say that you assembled a truly all-star cast as co-authors of this paper. Um, Sean Jeffrey from the University of Connecticut, uh, Nicole Brandt and Barbara Zarowitz from the University of Maryland, and one of your colleagues from the University of Pittsburgh, Stephen Handler, each of whom have been thought leaders in geriatrics and the care of older adults for many years now. So, I hope most of our listeners and readers of the journal will take some time to read this paper because I think it's an important contribution to the literature. The paper is well-written, very concise, an evidence-based how-to guide for pharmacists and other practitioners on how to initiate a deep prescribing practice. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit more about your practice at the University of Pittsburgh and how you got interested in deep prescribing. Yeah, absolutely, Stuart. So maybe I'll start with how I got interested in deep prescribing. I drank the deprescribing Kool-Aid when I was actually a palliative care fellow years ago. Uh, Just briefly, I got involved with a patient who was on a ton of meds and unfortunately was suffering and eventually was going to pass from a rare but very aggressive form of cancer. And I got called in to just take a look at his meds to see what would make sense and what wouldn't make sense. And as you can imagine, when I took a look, I was like, oh my goodness, like these meds can't be helping. Like we have to be, we have to do something better for this particular person. And then pretty much after that, I kind of devoted most of my clinical research and scholarly, as well as my education components of my positions to deprescribing. Deprescribing has taken multiple different forms for me in my um, career. Uh, But right now, um, I'm really excited because it's kind of taking like a new turn here at the University of Pittsburgh. So as you mentioned, yes, I am an assistant professor at a school of medicine, which I know can be funny sometimes. Uh, But most of my clinical work now is within the VA Pittsburgh uh, GREC, the Geriatric Research Education and Clinical Center, where I serve as the Associate Director for Education and Evaluation. Within that position, most of my clinical work is within our nursing home setting. In the VA, they call them community living centers. And so as you can imagine, the nursing home setting is probably arguably the most at-need population, but also arguably the hardest setting landscape to implement deprescribing. I would like to think that I, uh, maybe I'm not a huge deprescribing expert, but I've definitely uh, been doing this long enough to hit pretty much every barrier and landmine um, to implementing deprescribing across the board. And so I really appreciate you saying this paper could be really helpful to other folks that are venturing down this pathway because it can be challenging. So right now, my practice in the nursing home is uh, consult-based. So my providers are able to consult me to come in and take a look at 
a particular patient's medication list. Uh, and then because I'm part of the VA, I have a similar scope of practice as a nurse practitioner or a PA. So I am then given the authority to make those changes on the spot after I'm able to do the med review and speak to the patient, their family, other providers, et cetera, and then monitor that particular patient until either there are probably no more um, deprescribing eligible meds to touch, or if the patient or the provider say like, thanks so much, see you later. Uh, so it's really fun because I, I appreciate being in the VA a lot because it's given me the chance to, to really follow these patients from start to finish in the nursing home. Well, I think there's been a great deal of interest in deep prescribing in recent years because we've all seen, particularly older adults with multiple chronic diseases who are taking multiple, multiple, multiple medications. And at times it's unclear if they're helping or harming the patient. And I can think of a lot of practitioners and even patients and their caregivers who are reluctant to discontinue medications, even when they feel that they're taking too many medications. In your paper, you describe some of the barriers to deprescribing and some ways to overcome them. And I'm wondering if you can share some of your th- insights. Yeah, wow. There are a ton of barriers to implementing deprescribing into practice, right? You know, we can just start with like the most obvious, which is there really isn't a trigger for deprescribing, right? I don't have a, G- a JNC 8, you know, to tell me when it's time to start thinking about the the number of medications that could be potentially harmful or just the overall risk in general, right? So a lot of times providers are really hesitant to make changes because there isn't a great trigger for this type of thought process. And then, you know, number two, we are all kind of victims of clinical inertia. It's really hard to want to fix something that isn't broken. So, you know, if the particular person is not experiencing adverse drug reactions or if they're having adverse drug events, going to the hospital, et cetera, it can be challenging because you don't want to to, to make a change and then something um, bad can happen. You know, number three, you know, a, a lot of patients, and this really, I think, speaks to our culture in the United States you know, patients and families, they get really nervous about medication changes. We spend a considerable amount of time earlier in a person's life talking to them about the importance of taking all of their medications. You know, my hat's off to all of my ambulatory colleagues because that's really their job, you know, trying to use motivational interviewing techniques to get people to take their medications consistently. And that's really important. But then, you know, fast forward to when these patients and families get to me and get to a completely different part of their their disease trajectory and their life in general. And then I have to come in and kind of use similar techniques, but tell them, you know, the kind of the exact opposite. So that can be really unfamiliar and kind of really scary for people to make those changes as well. And then what becomes challenging, right, is really the fragmentations in care. You know, a lot of providers I talk to will say like, I don't want to stop this drug, Jen. Like I didn't prescribe it. You don't want to be that person that comes in and makes changes to meds where you weren't the one that starts them. And then, you know, think about how many patients get their medical care from multiple different places. A lot of those places aren't able to talk to each other. A lot of times these patients are also taking over the counters or other vitamins and supplements that can kind of throw wrenches into the mix. 
And so like overall, it's a really challenging setting to do de-prescribing kind of anywhere in our um, healthcare systems. And you know, it's funny, Stuart, I get asked all the time, like, what do you think is actually the biggest barrier to de-prescribing? Like, what do you think out of all of those is the real reason that people uh, struggle to de-prescribe? And the truth is, I I don't know. I've been doing this long enough that I've heard all of those barriers over and over and over again. And I feel like maybe my impression is that is maybe the clinical inertia. You know, we don't like to fix things that aren't broken, but I don't know. It's I maybe that should be the next paper. Maybe we should look at that next. What is actually the biggest barrier so we can overcome it? So over the past few years, Jen, there's been a I think a growing body of literature about deprescribing, and mm-hmm. we still have a lot to learn though. We, now we have today thousands and thousands of randomized controlled trials to help guide treatment decisions when starting medications, as you alluded to earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I can think of only a handful of papers mm-hmm. that are randomized control studies to guide decisions when stopping medications. In your paper, you do highlight some of these papers and their results. And I know it will be difficult just to pick two medications or two trials, but I'm hoping you can share with us a couple of the studies that have really influenced your practice. Stuart, why are you making me choose two? Okay, if I have to choose two. And I'm going to preface this with saying that it always has been interesting to me how some pharmacist providers feel very strongly about targeting medications that are focused around symptoms. As you know, there's been a ton of work, especially by the Canadian Deprescribing Research Network, around deprescribing benzos and anticholinergics, et cetera. But I have to admit, the trials that have really changed my practice um, have really been focused around medications for comorbid you know, disease states. So I think the first study that really like opened my eyes, changed my practice was the Safety and Benefits of Discontinuing Statins Trial by Jane Kuttner um, that was published back in 2015. Just briefly, this study uh, looked at patients who had a life-limiting illness. They define that as patients who were suspected of passing within a year's period, uh, randomized them to either stopping their statins or continuing their statins, and basically found through their primary outcome of um, mortality rates in 60 days, that there really wasn't a difference. And what was also really interesting about that study was they also found as part of their secondary outcomes that those patients who discontinued their statins also had a increase, a statistically significant increase in their quality of life, which was always really exciting for me because it brought up this thought process of, okay, medications not only can influence your physical health, but if I also can make changes to influence your psychosocial or your spiritual, your mental health, if you feel better, you feel like your quality of life is better, then yeah, I'm definitely going to see how I can make changes to, to reflect that for you. And then if I would have to choose number two, I feel like number two would probably be the study entitled Deprescribing Anti-Hypertensive treatments in nursing home patients and the effect on blood pressure. This was a study done by Christine Gulla, and it was published in the Journal of Geriatric Cardiology in 2018. This study looked at 765 patients from a bunch of Norwegian nursing homes and essentially looked at patients who were on multiple antihypertensive medications. 
and they randomized patients to either have their medications reviewed and then systematically discontinued or continued as part of usual care. And what they found was that those who were randomized to this systematic medication review that eventually, you know, deprescribed, you know, discontinued some of their antihypertensives found that there really wasn't a change, you know, a statistically significant difference on blood pressure over time. So to me, that was always really important, right? Because blood pressure is something that we as pharmacists, we as healthcare providers focus on is like one of the main objective outcomes. We tend to be really mindful about adding antihypertensives for all their, you know, cardiovascular and cerebrovascular effects. You know, we do a really great job of monitoring people um, on their on blood pressure meds. But then again, again, you get to, you know, a different part of your disease trajectory, life trajectory. And if I can successfully discontinue some of those drugs without putting you at risk of having, you know, major changes in your blood pressure, that's really exciting for me as well. And then, of course, because I work primarily in a, in a nursing home setting now, it was really exciting to me to think, wow, if I can make these changes to these medications, I could also reduce the burden on my nursing colleagues, my physician colleagues, because we would not have to look at so many meds during our meds review and my nursing colleagues wouldn't have to administer all these drugs all of the time. So I feel like those probably are the two that have influenced me the most. And I would suggest anybody who's listening to this to take a look at those trials if you haven't had a chance yet. They're pretty cool. So in your paper, you describe different ways that an organization can go about implementing a deprescribing service. And you use the PDSA acronym or Plan, Do, Study, Act acronym, which is a quality improvement model that the Institute of Healthcare Improvement recommends to describe this process of implementing such a service. And and undoubtedly, I know that you've experienced this in your practice. Mm -hmm. You will encounter resistance from patients and providers when you begin to make uh, recommended treatment changes, either stopping or tapering and then stopping medications. And, And so in the paper, you describe the frame communication map to facilitate these conversations. And I'm hoping you can explain to our readers and to our listeners what FRAME stands for and how I might use it in my practice. Sure. So the FRAME communication map came about about maybe like five years ago now when myself and my colleagues, we sat down and said to ourselves, like, how are we talking to patients, families, other providers about deprescribing? Because then, and especially now, because there's been a few studies recently that have have confirmed this, that it's really important that we are mindful about how we present and align our deprescribing recommendations so that it's aligning with that patient's goal and not taking away. It's not focusing on what can sometimes be perceived as us stopping their medical care or changing things for a negative impact. So frame ironically is is called frame, but it's a communication map that um, help hopefully can help when you're talking about deprescribing in your practice. So F briefly stands for form or fortify relationship. You know, as I mentioned, I'm often a consultant in my in my practice. So a lot of times building that trust with that person or that family, other provider 
while it might feel like a step that's unnecessary, is extremely valuable and important, especially when you're doing deprescribing. R stands for recognize willingness to deprescribe. And if there's one thing I could tell you to take away from this communication map, it's the R. We recognize willingness to deprescribe by asking that particular patient, family member, other provider, if the person is either on too many meds, not enough, or just right. And the reason we do that is because, one, it can be kind of challenging to ask people how they feel about their medications. You know, asking an open-ended question in, in my pre- in my past practices has not really gotten me the information that I wanted. So we wanted to do a multiple choice answer in a format that everyone feels comfortable with. So as you can see, like it's a little bit of a Goldilocks and the Three Bears kind of approach. And, and number two, the, the answer that you get can provide you so much insight as well as save you a ton of time, not only during that interaction, but future interactions as well. So if the person, family member, et cetera, comes back and says they are on not enough meds, you automatically know that you should take the time to talk to them about what, um, maybe what other symptoms they're experiencing, you know, what other things are going on, et cetera. If you have a, the person say like they're on just the right amount, then you can explore a little bit more about why they said that. Maybe they just trust, you know, or they feel like whatever, whatever plan has been brought forth by their other providers is okay with them or has made them comfortable in the past. And again, you can take the time to kind of explore those, those relationships and kind of see what makes sense for your, your particular interaction in the moment just then. But if you have somebody who right off the bat says like, I'm on too many and that window opens, then you kind of can jump right in and kind of, you know, save some time, figure out what makes sense, what deprescribing recommendations make sense for that particular person moving forward. So our recognized willingness to deprescribe, do you feel like you're on too many meds, not enough, or just the right amount, I think can be super helpful for all parties involved. A stands for aligned recommendations to patients' goals. And again, the literature time and time again has confirmed this. When we talk about deprescribing, it's really important to first talk about whatever the person's goal is, and then talk about how deprescribing is going to help match that. And you have to do it in that order, you know, goals, then deprescribing recommendation. So once you know a little bit about this person, what their goals are from, from F, you know, forming or fortifying that relationship and learning more about kind of where they are on the deprescribing willingness spectrum, you know, saying something like, wow, thank you so much for telling me that you feel like you're on too many meds. I can do something about that. This is what I'm going to do. Or I appreciate you telling me that, you know, you feel tired all the time and overwhelmed by taking all these meds. This is what I'm going to do to help that. Uh, And again, it's really important to go in that order. So the patient hears that you have, you understand what is important to them and that these, what you're about to do next, which is stopping a med is going to directly align with that. What sometimes does happen though is, you can get someone who says, yes, I, I'm on too many meds, and you make a specific recommendation, and then you start noticing that there's a little bit of cognitive dissonance. So M stands for cognitive dis- managed cognitive dissonance. Briefly, cognitive dissonance is essentially when you have two simultaneous but conflicting thoughts. So a patient can say something like, I'm still not sleeping but there is no way I'm stopping this, this sleeping pill that I am on. So they can recognize that maybe it's not helping them, but they're definitely not ready to, to stop it, et cetera. And so managing cognitive dissonance is really important because patients have very specific 
individual relationships with their medications. And so there are four ways that we present in frame ways to manage cognitive dissonance. I'll just say that out of the four, sometimes the easiest to use is the emotional or empathetic approach, which is when you can say something like, I appreciate that, but I am worried or I am concerned that all of these meds together or this particular medication is is causing you more harm than benefit and kind of seeing where the patient takes you from there. Lastly, E stands for empower patient to continue deprescribing. So if they are willing to deprescribe or if this is a second or third interaction where they have had some medication changes and there hasn't been any major negative changes, perhaps you even hear from the patient that they feel better, you can encourage them, empower them to continue deprescribing. You know, so saying like, yeah, like one med came up, that's awesome. Like, let's make some other changes now. And so again, Frame is, is there to help you not only think about how to present deprescribing to your patients, other providers, et cetera, but how to align those recommendations, get through some of the cognitive dissonance that all patients experience with their medications, and then really normalize the process. You know, the more that we as pharmacists, the more as we as, as healthcare providers overall talk about deprescribing the same way we talk about prescribing medications will help normalize that process, reduce the stigma, and it will become more customary, more comfortable to these to these patients moving forward. Well, Jen, this is awesome. I'm wondering if you can leave us with any final words of wisdom about how we can make deep prescribing an integral part of our practices and, and what resources are out there for those who want to learn more. Sure. So I'll start by saying there are some really great resources out there. The first one that I would strongly consider um, adding to your toolbox is take a look at deprescribing.org. Deprescribing.org is run by the Canadian Deprescribing Research Network. They have a ton of awesome, easy to use, evidence-based, validated resources for providers, not only from the clinical practice side, but as well as materials that you also can give patients. Deprescribing.org, Canadian Deprescribing Research Network does such great work. The other thing I'll, I'll add to your toolbox is take a look at deprescribingresearch.org. This is the website for the United States Deprescribing Research Network. Uh, and they're doing a lot of great work, really more on the research side, where they're offering you know pilot and grant opportunities to those of you who are interested in doing research in this topic. Uh, and they are have um, they offer great monthly webinars so that you can learn more from the experts in the field, and again, how to implement deprescribing into their into your practice as well. Uh, my words of wisdom would be, you know, one, prepare for the barriers. If you aren't able to recognize what potential landmines are in your therapeutic plan or how you present your deprescribing recommendations to your patients or other providers. That can be really disheartening and really challenging to kind of take everything to fruition. So one, be aware of the barriers that you have in your individual practice. Try to prepare for them best as you can. And then number two, I'll just say like, try not to be hard on yourselves. Deprescribing is not something that I learned in school. I would assume a lot of you didn't learn in school, but also all of our providers didn't really learn how to do this in school. So again, it's not a, you know, typically a comfortable, natural process for people to do. Yes. Yeah, so, so try not to be super hard on yourself. It's definitely a process 
and and you'll get there. There's enough polypharmacy to go around in my in my opinion. So you know, have at it, you guys. All of us together, when we come together, we'll definitely start making some changes to these meds. So. All right, Jen. Well, so many thanks to Jennifer Pruskowski for being our guest today. And uh, be sure to read the paper, How to Implement Deep Prescribing into Clinical Practice, which is available online now today at the JACCP website and will appear in the October 2021 issue of the journal. Again, many thanks. Bye, guys.